This message brought to you by Garrison Brewing and Nostaljunk Podcast. Tall Ship Amber by Garrison is an amber red ale, a tasty premium East Coast ale brewed with adventure, craft, pride, and independence. This beer delivers on true refreshment with an easygoing style. Drop anchor, hoist a glass, and launch into one. For more information, why not visit garrisonbrewing.com. The 1980s were a hotbed for slasher films, with franchises such as Friday the 13th and A Nightmare on Elm Street. The killers were becoming more popular than the victims slain on the screen, as audiences were beginning to identify more with the killer's personality, developing franchises, and studios churning out slashers at a rapid rate. They were all mimicking the fan-favorite format, You want blood? You got it! At the time, popular criticisms were not in favor of how slashers were representing the horror genre. Perverse and misogynistic were some of the key words used to describe this genre. Critics considered slasher films to be lowbrow and of poor taste, insinuating that slasher films could never be as poignant as some of its predecessors. Two decades before, Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 masterpiece Psycho reinvented how horrific storytelling could be told. Psycho received praise the world over and influenced not only directors and filmmakers alike, but also the newly defined horror subculture forever. Thank you for joining us on the Nostaljunk Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into the subculture known as Slasher. Here at the Nostaljunk Podcast, both Kyle and I are huge horror fans. But since the horror genre is so diverse, we thought it would be easier to pinpoint a specific subgenre within that category. So we would like to take you on a walk through our horrific fascination. So what are the elements that define a slasher film? What are its origins? Why was it insanely popular through the 1980s? And what is its evolution that allows the slasher to be reimagined for decades to come? By this point, the slasher film formula is timeless. The killer, or in this case, the slasher, is typically male and is either wearing a mask or by using lighting and camera techniques, their face remains a mystery. Typically, they have suffered a devastating life event, such as childhood trauma, which often casts the killer in a sympathetic light. Even within the murderous rampage of a slasher film, this can alter the audience's perceptions of the killings by accepting the homicidal actions due to their traumatic backstory. Isn't that nice? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Examples include Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees drowned as a child due to the neglect of the camp counselors who were engaging in partying and, of course, sex, and sleepaway camp. Okay, stay with me on this one. Angela Baker who died in a boating accident as a child, was survived by her brother Peter. 
Peter's aunt, Martha, gained custody of him after the incident. Although Martha already had a son, she decided to raise Peter as the girl she always wanted. Peter assumed Angela's name. Okay, if that last example leaves your brain feeling rather scrambled, you are still not prepared for the reveal. When it comes to dissecting a slasher film, audiences ultimately do not care about the characters successfully killing off the killer. They are more interested in the morbidly creative kills and how the killer has returned or will return from movie to movie. Often criticized for being considered misogynistic, slasher films have played a large part in empowering female leads. This trope is now known as the final girl. Historically, a strong and morally sound female will be the lone survivor of the film, or at least escaping before the setup for the next sequel. Because she has refrained from the deviant activities of her peers, all of whom have likely been eviscerated before the last stand, her virtuous behavior is what saves her, as she cannot be punished by the slasher's M.O. Here are some notable final girls. Jennifer Hills from I Spit on Your Grave, Jess Bradford from Black Christmas, Nancy Thompson from A Nightmare on Elm Street, Sydney Prescott from Scream, and Laurie Strode from Halloween. To better appreciate how far we've come, let's grab a shovel and exhume this corpse. Death as a source of entertainment has existed in coliseums, playhouses, literature, and silent film. As audiences were becoming more immune to shock and gore, special effects were beginning to challenge and captivate our baselines and limits. In the late 19th century, horror plays produced at the Grand Grignon utilized naturalistic horror effects which attracted audience members. By not using supernatural characters such as vampires and ghosts, this style of horror was humanized and more visceral. In the United States, the Hayes Code was passed in 1930, which was one of the earliest set of guidelines restricting sexuality and violence. Throughout the 30s and 50s, maniacs wearing gloves with secret pasts were seeking revenge on sororities. Hitchcock's Psycho featured groundbreaking visuals, character development, and an iconic score by Bernard Herrmann. Not only did it offend the sensibilities of the 1960s studio executives, featuring scenes of sexuality, violence, and a flushing toilet. But it also received four Academy Award nominations. Hollywood began producing star-laden horror films as it was becoming an accessible form of entertainment. 1960 also saw a once-overlooked and underappreciated proto-slasher titled Peeping Tom, which has since been shared and discussed among horror enthusiasts. Although overshadowed by Psycho, Partially due to being released in the same year, Peeping Tom is far more brutal, visceral, and upsetting. The film follows the interest of a serial killer, who is obsessed with not only filming the deaths of his victims, but capturing their dying expressions of terror. Sounds very similar to a basic death scene from any 80s slasher, as the audience gets to witness the act from the killer's point of view. Again, this is from 1960. And because it was 1960, Due to the film's subject matter and graphic depiction of death, 
The film actually impacted Michael Powell's career negatively. It took years before it was recognized as a cinematic achievement, but only within the last few years has Peeping Tom found its home in the upper echelon of British film history. The following program contains graphic violence intended for adult audiences. Viewer discretion advised. The irony of censorship is that anytime there is a regulation placed on art, an underground movement will inevitably begin to create more extreme forms of art in response to the biased suppression of censorship. Ironically, where there are labels placed on art in effort to restrict its appeal to potential viewers, and sometimes going as far as forcibly altering the final cut of the release, it elicits the need to see what was so awful in the first place. Over time, what was once previously censored and despicable becomes the acceptable mainstream form of what is appropriate shock. Of course, where there's acceptable gore, there's gratuitous gore, and another subgenre simply called splatter was born. Splatter films feature extreme violence, torture, and mutilation, all of which exposing the vulnerability we possess. Blood Feast is wildly considered the first splatter film and was building a cult following. Although stifled by mainstream censorship, smaller studios initially flew under the radar, ushering in more independent films to follow suit. Unlike the United States, European filmmakers were not under the same strict regulations which existed in Hollywood. By the 70s, Italian counterparts were developing a new wave of gore-obsessed horror called giallo, which was, at its core, a murder mystery, incorporating elements of sexuality and the supernatural. An example of the giallo influence on the slasher genre would be Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace, released in 1964. Many of the definitive slasher tropes were established in this film, including a masked killer wearing black gloves, killing provocatively portrayed women with a bladed weapon. However, Dario Agento's 1970 debut film, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, breathed new life into Giallo, as it was a box office success, further influencing a new wave of Giallo films to come. The mid-70s saw an out-of-control, gritty, and realistic tour through hell. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One could argue that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has more legs rooted in what will be known as grindhouse. Exploitation, sexualized, low-budget, bloodied excess. But it does push the narrative of isolation, panic, and legend. Bob Clark, the director of the Yuletide classic A Christmas Story, directed what many consider to be an influential proto-slasher Black Christmas as it incorporated a killer stalking its female prey and filming from the killer's point of view all of which are staples in the slasher genre Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright sleigh bells, crackling yule logs Candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. 
The 70s was a groundbreaking era for television. As social climates were shifting, so too were the needs of the viewers. This led to a new wave of shows focused on educating and challenging issues of race, equality, and politics. But another true horror haunted pop culture, serial killers. During the 70s, Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and the Zodiac Killer were some of the major figures of evil as they instilled fear throughout homes across North America. Their crimes and trials were heavily documented on all forms of media. Their faces, crime scenes, and victims were on TV. Their names echoed around water coolers and break rooms. Their presence stalked society at work, school, and when you closed your eyes at night. As the 70s were nearing an end, horror began to shape an iconic slasher and dared to boldly go where no slasher had gone before. Thank you for staying with us this week. We will inevitably return with a sequel in our mini-series on the slasher. Hey guys, I'm Darcy, founder of Spirit. And I'm Kelly, the Chief Technical Officer of Spirit. Back in 2011, we formed the Supernatural Paranormal Investigations and Research Institute, searching for answers to mysterious things that were happening in our little corner of Canada. And we haven't stopped searching for those answers ever since. Join us on our podcast, Canadian Spirit, as we dive into all of Canada's most famous and forgotten paranormal mysteries. Examine the evidence and try to figure out what might be behind Canada's ghosts, cryptids, and UFO encounters. In Canadian Spirit, you'll get a peek behind the curtain and see for yourself what being a paranormal investigator is really like and learn something about Canadian history, which isn't as boring as it sounds. Even if it is, we're a pair of chuckle fucks, so we'll do our best to make it entertaining. So come along for the ride and discover for yourself what makes the land of maple and hockey so wonderfully weird. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, you know, wherever you find your podcasts. And remember, raccoons are aliens, werewolves are perverts, and ghosts are just downright rude sometimes. Join Jackie and Danielle, two best friends and ex-Blockbuster employees who are re-watching some of their favorite movies from the late 90s and early 2000s on the No More Late Fees podcast. And remember, be kind and rewind.